you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who, pra- who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. And let us pray together. Gracious Father, uh, we come now uh, beginning in verse 6 and through at least verse 13 uh, to consider uh, perhaps uh, the the verses that uh, Christians are most in difficulty over in the book of Romans. It's interesting to see the commentators and the theologians take uh, different differing positions, one of two positions, which we'll consider. We ask, O oh God, whenever we face such a, te- a text, that even men who are in agreement on almost all things find that they're in disagreement over particular verses, pray that we might come to them with a true humility of spirit, but that nevertheless we wouldn't come away from this confounded, but that we would rather be enlightened and convicted by your word and that we would share, as a result of this text, as with the others, Paul's amazing zeal and eagerness uh, for the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you remember, we're now three sermons into uh, Romans chapter 2, and Paul has pivoted to the Jew. He says, O man, in verse 1, which could indicate that he's speaking generally, but Uh, In verse 17, continuing the argument, he says, you are called a Jew. And it would seem the O man of verse 1 is the same man. Uh, And so most, and I along with them, take Paul, at least primarily here, to be speaking in chapter 2 of the Jews, just as he was primarily speaking of the Gentiles in chapter 1, verses 19 through 32. And what we saw last time uh, from verse 3 was the way in which the Jew felt that they could escape God's judgment. He says that. Do you think this, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? He asked that question because they did. And uh, one of the ways that they felt that they could and that they would evade God's judgment or escape it was on account of his goodness. Verse 4, where it says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the, the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Well, the tragedy of the Jews was that they. They didn't know that, or at least they didn't apply what they knew. And this is something which uh, I indicated that even we Christians are guilty of whenever we sin in a careless fashion. We're sinning against the goodness of God. We are, in fact, despising it, Paul says, because we're taking it for granted and we're using it as an excuse to sin rather than as a wonderful opportunity God is giving us to improve our lives and to repent and to make use of the opportunity in the hour that he's given us. And so we see what he says in verse 4. I won't read it again. But just that the goodness of God is not meant uh, to let men off the hook, but it was meant to give them an opportunity unto repentance. And every time man uses God's goodness, that is the present opportunity, in any way other than repentance, the fact that is that God suffers and forbears my sins so richly, I am guilty of abusing it and despising it. But the trouble, as Paul points out, 
to the man who uses this as an excuse, the Jew in particular, in verses 2 and 3, is that God's judgment cannot be escaped. Because all have sinned and therefore all are liable to judgment, the judgment of God. Because God's judgment is according to truth, verse 2, and because it is against all who practice sin, it is against all because all are sinners. And for me to think as a sinner that I am somehow or other able to evade this perfect justice is to misunderstand what God's judgment is and who it is against. Paul's point, his greater point in this greater section, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, is to show once more that all are under sin, Jew and Gentile alike, and therefore all are guilty before God. And the last day will find out all men as sinners. It doesn't matter what you claim or what, you're thi- or what, what you think, what your excuse is, in other words, you, Jew or Gentile alike, will be found on that day to be without excuse. And nothing will be able, or rather nothing will enable you, to face the wrath of God to be revealed on that day, but the gospel, which Paul was so eager to preach. Now, I'm going to lay that point aside for a moment, but that is the greater point that he's making. It is in the context of preaching the wrath of God, or or the context of the reality, rather, of the wrath of God, that he's preaching the gospel to all men who are alike without excuse before God. And so, with that being the greater point, uh, having spoken briefly of the goodness of God in verse 4, in verses 5 and 6, as in verses 1 through 3, Paul is speaking of the judgment of God and how that is an inescapable reality for all. And he's showing why that is so. He has just dealt with those who despise God's goodness. Again, the Jew primarily, but it could be anyone. Verse 4. And in verse 5, he tells us what happens to such persons. If you look at what he says, how he describes this person, one whose hard heart is hard and impenitent, you will see the direct contrast. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance. In other words, in the context of God's goodness, they are living lives of impenitence. Verse 5, that's exactly what he says. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. In Revelation, the righteous judgment of God. There is the contrast. Rather than being led by God's unspeakable goodness unto repentance, this person is hard-hearted and impenitent. In fact, it is actually true to say of this person that God's goodness being despised is what hardens him in his sin. The more he despises the goodness of God, the more he is given over to his sin. And hardness is the result, much as we saw in chapter 1 with respect to the Gentile. But beyond that, not only is his heart hardened in sin, having despised the goodness of God, but as a result of the hardness of his heart, he became impenitent, Paul says. That is, he did not repent. He did not wish to repent. And what Paul is saying is what happens to such a person. The hard-hearted, impenitent despiser of God's goodness. What the man himself is accomplishing as a result of this. Notice how he puts this. In accordance with your hardness 
and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse five, that's how it ends. Again, it is interesting to notice now another contrast between what this man is doing, the storing up of wrath uh, and what Jesus tells his disciples to do in Matthew chapter six. Let me read those verses where Jesus tells his disciples to store up treasure in heaven. Verses 19 through 21, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As I say, there's a very interesting and obvious parallel uh, and contrast that's present in those two places. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 and Matthew chapter 6. And the parallel works like this. Both men, Jesus and Paul, are saying that the course of this life must be seen in its relationship to the life to come. And that way, whether you realize it or not, you are either storing up treasure in heaven by your good works or you are storing up wrath for yourself on the great day of judgment. The relationship of this life to the life to come is seen in the metaphor of storing up treasures. Uh, Paul says something similar. I won't read it, but just to summarize what he says in Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. What you uh, sow, you will also reap. The wicked uh, will reap uh, destruction. The godly will reap uh, God's goodness. Something like that. What you sow, you will reap. It's an application of that principle. And Paul here in Romans chapter 2 in contrast to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 to the believer, Paul is speaking to the unbeliever. He's applying the principle to him, the man who despises God's goodness as an excuse to live a life of sin. And he is telling him his plight, frankly, that with every passing day, he is only making things worse for himself on the day of judgment. Every uh, sin that is committed against God's goodness is a further storing up of wrath. It is an incredibly sobering teaching, but there it is. Every sin which he commits is a further heaping that will be heaped upon his head by way of judgment on the last day. The tragedy of this man is that he doesn't realize it now. He doesn't realize what he's doing. That his sinful acts are actually being stored away, kept in heaven, waiting to be revealed. That in, in a sense he will never have to face the full penalty of them in this life. But the day will come when he will. And whatever he faces on that day, Paul says, will be in exact accordance with the life that he has lived. And the more that he sins, the more God's indignation and wrath he will face. And so it obviously behooves such a person. To realize what he is doing and to be awakened from his guilty slumber and to flee from the wrath of God to be revealed. And this is where I'll return to the point that I said I'll set aside for a moment. You remember here again the fundamental setting in which the gospel is being presented to man. And what it was that gave Paul such confidence and eagerness and zeal to preach the gospel. Of, of course Paul can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is to say I'm confident in the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith and so on. 
That's Paul's message. But it's only because what he goes on to say in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is the setting in which the gospel is being proclaimed. It is a setting in which God's wrath is being revealed and at the same time being stored up for a further future revelation. And so it is because man needs to be saved and because only the gospel can actually save him that Paul has such amazing zeal to preach it. But not as a light and breezy message. You see, Paul wasn't that kind of evangelist. He was a man who was just as willing to preach the wrath of God as he was the grace of God. And when he preached the grace of God, he preached it as the power of God to save those against whom the wrath of God was being revealed. Yes, God is even able to save them. Those who are at this very moment storing up wrath on the day of judgment to be revealed against them. And who are with each successive sin storing up more and more wrath for that day. And his amazing goodness, verse 4, is seen in the fact That even to such a person, he is still crying out to him, Oh man, will you not repent unto salvation and be saved? And so the first point had to do with what he says in verse 5. What this man is doing, the hard-hearted, impenitent sinner. He's storing up wrath. And Paul is preaching even to him to turn and be saved. But as my second point... I want to look at what he says, not to the man, but about the day in particular. And there's two things to be said about it. First, it is, Paul says, a day of wrath, which means it is an actual day. There is going to be a day when men are walking the earth, when suddenly the Lord comes in judgment, just as he did when the waters broke forth on the day that the flood began. A day of judgment. The day is sure to come. And it is the task of gospel preachers to announce its coming and to warn sinners from their impending doom. Flee from the wrath to come, the coming day. We find John the Baptist, we find the prophets, we find Jesus, we find the apostles all doing so, referring to a future day, a coming day. And it is that day that Paul is speaking of here. He is preaching not only of the present revelation of wrath from heaven, but now of a future one, which will occur on a fixed day. And which, unlike the present day of the revelation of God's wrath, in which uh, the goodness of God is mingled in, goodness mingled with wrath, that's the present day, still there is an opportunity to flee. The coming day will offer men or afford men no such opportunity. It will usher men into their final state, as he goes on to say in verses 7 and 8. Eternal life to those who by patience, patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath and so forth. In other words, while repentance still remains a possibility for sinful men today on account of God's goodness on that day. The opportunity to turn and be saved will no longer be there. And men must forever then spend eternity amongst the treasures they have gathered unto themselves in this life. 
And you see how woeful the dawning of eternity will be for the wicked. It will come upon them with stunning suddenness. And they will be left on that day without excuse or argument. Uh, We sung about it in the first verse of the hymn. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. And God will then begin and never cease to pour out the full fury of his wrath upon them. Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. That's verses 8 and 9. And yet, at the same time, speaking of the coming day, the day of wrath, we also find how for the believer, the New Testament speaks of the coming day as a day of salvation. A day that believers are called not only to prepare for, so that it does not find us unprepared and thus ashamed, but also to look forward to with great Eagerness and earnest expectation. In fact, uh, the Christian grace of hope has reference specifically to that day. What we are hoping for is the dawning of an eternal salvation. Again, verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Again, verse 10. But glory, honor, And peace to everyone who works what is good. But the second thing to be said with regard to the day is that it involves, as Paul says at the end of verse 5 into verse 6, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. In other words, it is on that day, above all, that the righteousness of God's judgment will become apparent and will come into full exercise. The righteousness of God's judgment exercised on that day will be seen in the fact that he renders to each according to his deeds. Verse 6. And so there will be an exact correspondence to the rendering of each on that day and the deeds of the life that he has lived. Remember, the point of Paul is to show what God's justice is. Is like in this broader section. He wants us to see that it's a true justice and a fair one. There are not two standards, one for the Jew and another for the Gentile. There is one standard only equally applied to all. And the last day above all will reveal the truth of this. And that standard is simply this, that each man's fate will correspond to his life. In other words, we see that it is an application of justice to the individual, each one. In fact, we find Paul uh, using that phrase again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Each one will give an answer for the life that he lives. And he lived and what is rendered unto him will be in accordance to that. You see, Paul isn't speaking of nations or groups. That is irrelevant from the standpoint of the last day. No man will be able to answer for the sin of another, nor will he have to. On that day, what will matter is the kind of life you lived. And each one will have to answer for that and for that only. God will not judge you, beloved, for what your ancestors did. Nor will he justify you for that. His only interest will be, what did each man do? And for that, he will be judged. And so we find two things stated about the day of judgment. One, it's universality, each man. And two, the criterion of judgment being one of perfect and exact justice. Again, the righteousness of his judgment is seen or of his justice is seen in the fact that to each is 
rendered according to his deeds. Another way to put it is that on the last day, at the last judgment, the principle of works will be operative. The standard of justice is that of law, which means that of works. Each man will be judged according to his works. But the question then becomes, is that actually true or just hypothetically true? And this is where we find the disagreement between the commentators and the theologians, all Protestant, uh, but wrestling with Romans chapter 5, chapter 2, verse 5 through 13. This is the question that, uh, that is asked of all of these verses. When I say that the rendering of judgment to each on the last day will be according to works, that it will, it will correspond to the deeds of one life, those are our two options, the actual view and the hypothetical view. The two main ways this passage is taken. When you take uh, verse 6, who will render to each according to his deeds, and then verse 13 especially, for not the hearers of the law, or, or for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You take those two verses together and you are confronted with those two options. Now, we will come to verse 13 in due course, but for now our interest is merely in assessing the statement in verse 6, that God will render to each according to his deeds on the last day. Is it a statement of fact or a hypothetical assertion? Well, let, let me examine the hypothetical view first because it's so common. And in fact, uh, it used to be my view, although, uh, as you know, you always give the false view first and then the correct view second. So it's no longer my view, uh, but it used to be. And it's a very common one. Uh, it's not so common in the commentators, at least the one I'm reading, but it seems to find its way into the theologians, which is interesting, just as an observation. Uh, but uh, looking uh, at, at this view, the hypothetical view works something like this. It has to do with the positive side of things, the rendering of eternal life unto the godly. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 13, the doers of the law being justified. The view is that if such a man really could be found, then yes, he would be justified by his works. The rendering unto him on the last day would be that of perfect, uh, perfect reward for the perfect life lived. But since such a person does not, and now because of original sin cannot exist, it is a mere hypothetical assertion. If such a person was uh, really existed, he would be justified by his works, but there is no such person. And so it's hypothetical. Gaffin, Dr. Gaffin, Richard Gaffin, summarizing the position, who does not take this position, by the way, says this. He says, it is the view that Paul is speaking of what is true in principle, but is not in fact realized. Now, the strength of this view is seen in the fact that it appears to resolve the basic tension between what is stated, for instance, in verse uh, 13, that the doers of the law will be justified. And chapter 3, verse 20, that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. It seems to resolve the tension. And so the problem goes away. And it's for this reason that so many take the view. But the weakness is twofold. And to me, it is a fatal weakness, twofold weakness. The first weakness is found in the fact that it's difficult to see what Paul gains at this point in his argument by stating a hypothetical principle. For the argument has been beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and continues to be the justice of God's wrath. And verses 5 and 6, as well as verse 13, and every verse that we've considered, supports this basic assertion 
that God is not unjust to reveal his wrath against sinners, not now and not in eternity. Again, he is maintaining the justice of God's wrath. And when you look at verses 5 and 6 in that way, there's no reason to assert they're hypothetical. They certainly support that notion. In verse verse 5, he reminds us of the reality of that coming day. And in verse 6, he tells us the standard by which men are judged, by their deeds. The second weakness of the hypothetical view is seen, and this truly is fatal, is seen when we compare this text with others in the New Testament that uh, that give the, the same exact truth. And in the interest of time, I won't read them, but I'll summarize them. You have uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. Let me just read that one, and then I'll give you the rest of them uh, by list. But uh, it becomes difficult to maintain the hypothetical view when you see Romans chapter 2, verse 6, in light of these other passages. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, he says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account on the day of judgment for it. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Perhaps that isn't the strongest, so let me read one more. Chapter 16, verse 27. He says, The Son of Man will come in glory and with his angels. Then he will reward each according to his works. There's the phrase, according to his works. And if you were to go uh, into chapter 5, the parable at the end, chapter 25, excuse me, the parable of the last day. If you were to read again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that the judgment, uh, I suppose I, I do want to read that again, actually. So we find the same phrase, in fact. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. We're going to look at that later in the sermon. Again and again and again, you find That men are judged on the final day or there is a rendering unto them according to their deeds. And the problem with the hypothetical view is that if you apply it to Romans chapter 2 verse 6, you have to apply it to all of those other passages as well. It might resolve the basic apparent tension in Romans, but then you are left with that tension in the rest of of the New Testament. Again, what you notice is simply a statement of the principle which the justice of God will reveal on the last day, namely that what you reap will be what you have sown. That one's fate in eternity will correspond to his life. The wicked will suffer one fate, the godly another. And that is because once more, as Paul has stated, that God's justice is according to truth. And it is a revelation of a perfectly righteous judgment, verse 5. And so it cannot be otherwise. There cannot be another principle at work on the last day than this. There will be no partiality, no favoritism, only an equal applica- application of the law to every individual. Verse 11, he says there's no partiality with God. And that is why man's excuse, whatever it is, will not stand up on that day. It is because he simply cannot evade the purity and the perfection of God's righteous judgment to be revealed. And thus I must state my preference for what I would call the actual view. That Paul is not stating what would be true, a hypothetical truth, but what is in fact true. What all men will discover on that day. Simply that the day of wrath, or on the day of wrath, 
God will in fact render to each according to his deeds. And that this principle applies to everyone, the universality of it, which includes believers. But it's important to see that as you take this statement, verse 6, verse 13, and so on, in its broader context, what Paul is arguing for in chapters 1 through 3, you will realize that Paul is not speaking of salvation. His interest here is not in how man is saved. He hasn't begun to assert that a man can be saved by his works. He is asserting the reality and therefore the standard of God's judgment. All with the view, as I've said before, to strip man of every excuse, to lay him bare as a sinner before the awful scrutiny of the great day. To show, as he later says in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Paul is not setting forth the manner of justification so for uh, so much as he is setting forth the manner of condemnation, because this is the standard. All men alike are condemned uh, by this standard. Martin Lloyd-Jones is very helpful here when he says what Paul is showing here is the ground in terms of judgment and condemnation that God will render on that day of wrath and judgment to every man according to his deeds. Those are going to be the terms of judgment, not of salvation. He's not considering salvation here. He's only considering the terms of judgment on this great day of wrath. And what he's telling them is, is that on that day, nothing will be considered except the man's works. It is no use anybody stepping forward and saying, but I am a Jew. The question is, what were your works? It's no use saying I was a Gentile. The question is, how did you live? The standard of judgment and condemnation is one of works. And so we see that Paul is not in tension with himself. What he says here is no different than what he later says in verse 20 of chapter 3, that the whole world is silenced and becomes guilty before God. It is exactly because this is the standard of judgment that all are guilty. The universality of sin is what makes this certain, that all are sinners and therefore all are guilty, precisely because the standard is the same for everyone. To each man will be rendered according to his works. So Paul is stating, as Lloyd-Jones said, why the difference between the Jew and the Gentile amounts to nothing, at least with respect to the last day. It's because of what he says in verse 6. Which is the deciding factor. Not whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, but how did you live? That is what will matter on the last day. And indeed, he says in verse 5, the worse your life was, the worse that day will be. Especially for the Jew who sinned against such goodness and grace. Let me return here to an earlier text, which I did not read, but which I'll read now. In an effort to resolve some of the difficulty with regard to the believer. And his experience of that day when the great rendering occurs. If the final judgment will be a rendering to all according to their works. How can believers in Jesus hope to fare any better than the Jews? Again, that's the problem that the hypothetical view seeks to resolve. By simply evaporating the problem rather than facing it. 
Well, as I say, the resolution does not lie in the suggestion that what Paul says in verse 6 isn't really true. It doesn't apply to the believer. That would be to miss his greater point, which has to do with the universality and the inescapability of God's judgment. The answer, rather, uh, it turns out, and I owe this insight to J.I. Packer in knowing God, has to be found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And let me read those verses now. You notice a reference to the books and to the standard of judgment. Listen to this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead. Uh, who were in it, the death and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You notice the whole world is to be judged by what is found in the books And what is recorded in those books are the deeds of men. By these they will be judged and damned and thrown into the lake of fire. But here is the amazing thing John tells us. It is not that those books are closed for the believers. It is rather that there is another book. Did you notice that? The book of life. And all all whose names are written there in the book of life will be saved. And what it was that gave them a place in that book was not their works, but the grace, the saving grace and electing love of God from before the foundation of the world by which he loved them in Jesus Christ, the beloved. But everyone else, he says, whose name was not found in that book will be judged by their deeds, which were recorded in the books and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. But this does not negate, let me say, as my final point, this does not negate. Well, this accounts for the fact that we will not be condemned, but it does not negate the fact that for the believer, a rendering to him will also occur. And I'm only beginning to preach now what will become the basis of my next sermon, that the believer on that day, for him, there will be a rendering that will be on the basis of works. Now, certainly that was Paul's point in Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse 10. He was speaking only to believers saying that we will face him and that uh, we will have a rendering unto us according to our works. And so what he says in verse two of chapter uh, verse six of chapter two in Romans must also carry the same force that for the believer on the last day, there will be a rendering unto him on the basis of his life. And thus we as believers, as Paul says in second Corinthians chapter five, verse nine, we seek to live lives that are pleasing to him. Why? Because we know that the great day of judgment will reveal the kind of people we were, the kind of disciples we were. And it will be discovered on that day when we give an account whether we were good and faithful or not. But thank God, though the books which are opened in which the deeds of men are recorded will be read, even for the believer, they will not damn us. For our names, as we have seen, were also recorded in another book. And thus there is not and can never be any condemnation for the believer in Jesus Christ. What then of the other books and the works and the reading of them and the rendering on account of them? Well, there will be 
This is the sense of 2 Corinthians 5. This is also the sense of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, both of which I read as the scripture reading. There will be, for the believer, an appraisal and a distribution of rewards so that it will be for him on that day a rendering of reward, not of merit, which seems to be the thought not only of 2 Corinthians 5, but of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He speaks of the man in verse 15 who will be saved as though by fire. He will suffer loss, he says. And what he loses, obviously, is not salvation. Paul says he will be saved. What he loses, rather, is his reward. And it is in this sense that each of us must give an account and will find in doing so that there will be a rendering to each according to what he has done, even the believer. And that even for him, that rendering will correspond exactly to his life. It will be an application of justice and reward that is perfect and true. There's more to be said on this, especially uh, with regard to the difference between the believer and the unbeliever, as we'll see in the following sermon. But uh, for now, let me ask you, do you see the amazing grace of God that the names of any should be recorded in this book, the book of life? That salvation should be offered to those whose lives plainly merited eternal condemnation. And that that salvation was itself a demonstration of justice and wrath. Even as it became for the believer an effectual application of grace and love unto salvation. As it is found at the cross. And will you not praise God and seek to live, as Paul says, lives that are pleasing to him. Seeing that this is so. And seeing that you will one day have to give an account. And may that great day find each of us out. Not as those who are faithless. But as those who are good and faithful. And worthy of a reward. Amen. And let us now come to the table.